Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Ned Pro Podcast. My name is James Bradfield. I'm one of the deputy co-leads of our Global Innovation Panel. And I'm absolutely delighted today to be joined by Professor Shimon Ray. For those of you who don't know, Shimon is our founding chair and executive director of the Ned Pro Group. And this is very much building on last the last podcast that I recorded with Dr. Ronita Barton about some of the factors in India, for example, and other countries that are affecting health and access to nutrition during the coronavirus pandemic. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would advise you to go back and do that first. But um, there, it's still an interesting conversation with Shimon that I think a lot of people will gain from, even if they haven't listened to that episode previously. So without further ado, um, I hope you enjoy this conversation between myself and Professor Shimon Ray. So first of all, thank you, Shimon, for joining me this afternoon. For those of you who don't know, Professor Shimon Ray is the Executive Director and Founding Chair of the NEDPRO Global Centre. He's also a Director of Research in Food Security, Health and Society at the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Cambridge. And he also holds a Professorship in Global Nutrition at Ulster University. So like I said, Shimon, thank you very much for joining me. I've spoken previously to Dr. Ronita Barton, who's also at the University of Cambridge, about a lot of her work in India specifically and slum rehabilitation housing. So could you give us a little bit of an idea of, I suppose, the food environment in these sort of urban slums? And maybe then can you give us an idea of how that has changed or may have changed with the outbreak of COVID-19 and the ensuing pandemic? Thank you very much, James. Um, So firstly, I'd like to say that um, I'm delighted that we're able to uh, have this discussion around some of the wider determinants of um, food-related diet um, and health outcomes, uh, but also that we're able to do that in the wake of the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I think broadly speaking, Most will know that heredity, environment, diet, lifestyle and socioeconomic circumstances form some of the key pillars of the wider determinants of um, health. Um, But today, really, um, I think we're considering the juxtaposition of um, environment and how that impacts um, diet and from there, uh, other aspects of health outcomes. Um, speaking of environment, uh, clearly there's the physical or built environment to consider. And then of course, there's the food environment. Uh, as regards the work that we do um, through the NEDPRO Global Center, um, we have a particular focus on both urban as well as rural Uh, environments and um, the impact that the food environment has on food choices, nutritional status and health outcomes. Um, And we look at this in some detail, particularly in the Indian subcontinent, alongside other low to middle income countries, um, as well as marginalised communities in other countries too. Um, In India in particular, we're involved in a large uh, program of work led by Cambridge University uh, known as Transforming India's Green Revolution for um, Sustainable Food Supplies. Um, 
and uh, we're also involved in a micro enterprise innovation model in urban slums um, known as the mobile teaching kitchen. So all of this has given us some insight into the um, dynamic um, food environments um, within the wider aspects of environment that uh, urban as well as rural populations, particularly more marginalized populations, have to contend with. Um, and of course, adding to that the um, current crisis of COVID-19, there's been quite a lot to think about and uh, analyze in terms of the uh, impact on individuals, on populations, and importantly, potential policy actions that uh, could be taken. Um, but essentially, the um, food to nutrition stepladder, as we see it, goes from food production through the food environment, um, which of course is dependent on food supply and food system around it. Um, and that then links to food choices, which obviously is part of consumer behavior. Those food choices lead to dietary patterns and in turn uh, that can determine uh, nutritional status and uh, can have an impact on health outcomes. Um, so of course, uh, particularly poignant now that um, uh, baseline health um, and nutrition need to be intact uh, more than ever before in the wake of COVID-19. Absolutely. And you've hit on a couple of very important points there. Obviously, the fact that the food environment is so much more than just, you know, what what, what you put on your own plate at home, for example. It's the, the structural things in in sort of collaboration, I suppose, with, with individual consumer behavior, as you described. So I suppose delving into that then a small bit more, we in the UK, for example, over the last number of weeks and months, um, we've seen consumer behavior change quite a lot around food. So at the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, for example, and I spoke to Tim, uh, Dr. Tim Eden in an earlier podcast about this, how, you know, for about a week or 10 days, it seemed as though you could buy pasta nowhere in the UK because it was just being grabbed off the shelves by everybody. And I suppose that's much more about consumer behavior, whereas we didn't really necessarily see as much impact or damage done to the food environment from a structural point of view and from food supply point of view in many of the supermarkets, for example, around the UK. But could you give an idea, Shimon, maybe of how things like that may differ in in a different environment? So in this um, in, in India, for example, like we're talking about how the behavior change may have changed or how um, the structural, you know, what, what's the main issue there? Is it structural in terms of the system itself or is it the uh, more consumer behavior? And, and how do those things kind of compare to the UK, for example? Sure. So, so I think, I mean, it's probably necessary to understand a little bit about the um, different components of a food environment. So mm -hmm. things like availability, uh, the price of, of food, um, the, the different sort of properties of uh, the vendors um, that are responsible for the distribution and sales of food, and of course, um, some of the policies around marketing and, and regulation. So, so these all form part of the uh, 
more fixed aspects of the food environment within which um, individuals and, and populations um, uh, exist. And then, of course, there are the personal constructs of this. So um, within that fixed food environment, um, uh, accessibility will be a key factor in um, accessing uh, available foods. Um, affordability will be another major one. Um, and uh, convenience. Um, so again, depending on the social class that we're talking about, the reliance on, um, say, for example, um, food outlets, which were preparing foods, particularly for those who um, do daily labor and don't necessarily have the food preparation systems uh, set up. Um, and then, of course, certain foods become more desirable. And then that has a, a sort of impact, depending again on what the policies are within a given market, that can have an impact on the pricing and therefore accessibility. So it's a little bit of a loop between the uh, external domain of the food environment and the personal domain, which is um, determined very much by how people respond or react to uh, changes in the overall um, food environment. Um, in countries like India, for instance, um, or, or similar economies, um, I think one would be seeing differences depending on uh, socioeconomic um, background. Um, so the reaction to the COVID-19 um, shutdown, for instance, um, was very similar, particularly in the um, very large and upwardly mobile middle class in, in India. So a, a lot of very reactive buying, uh, a mm -hmm. lot of storage of foods with uh, greater uh, shelf life. Um, and again, that was possible in places where there's more of a, a centralization in the supply chain where the distribution points and the retail points are actually linked to uh, multiple different channels of input um, uh, in terms of supply, but also one where there is some central stock in terms of certain foods and food products. And that's very different to what's been happening in the um, more marginalized end of the socioeconomic spectrum, where really there's there's been great reliance on um, these readily available meals, which um, particularly those doing daily labor, um, access in food outlets. There's been a reliance on uh, whatever foods um, can be purchased with daily wages and cooked on the day. Um, so even in a city or urban environment, um, people from more marginalized communities who may not have storage facilities or refrigeration facilities um, have um, really uh, struggled quite a lot as soon as the um, daily supply taps have been turned off. In, in rural areas, again, um, I, I think one could argue that um, it's a strength that there have been 
um, very local or regionally focused um, supply chains. But um, it, it's been um, very visibly different between regions as uh, a country as large as India has locked down in stages. Um, the, the differences have been uh, very, very um, profound um, as to uh, one state or one region versus another, uh, depending on where lockdown has happened first. So, so those localized supply chains, which in some ways have been quite good from a sustainability point of view, from a, a carbon footprint point of view, uh, has also been a, a weakness in that um, a local lockdown has meant uh, an immediate um, or acute uh, shortage in, mm. in food supply. So, so this is just a, a very kind of bird's eye uh, perspective of um, what's been happening in, in countries like India. Um, I think... And of course, like you mentioned, Shimon, so difficult to, to summarize because it is so large and there are so many different regions and, and, and all that. You know, there was a couple of things that you mentioned, for example, that, that made me think back to, to the conversation I had with Dr. Bardon about, you mentioned price of food and you mentioned the local supply chains, for example, how they're great in one sense from an environmental point of view and maybe a, a local sustainability point of view. But then, like you said, when, the, when those systems are interrupted and those daily supply chain taps, I think is the phrase that you use, are sort of switched off, it leads to big issues because there are a lack of things perhaps like um, ability to store food, ability to, to keep food for longer periods of time. And of course, this is also related, like you said, to socioeconomic status and, and class, which I think is, again, probably something we take for granted in places like the UK and other parts of um, of, of Europe, for example. You know, we spoke to, um, when I spoke to Dr. Barton, she, she mentioned that that social distancing and being able to do that is in many ways a privilege and actually being able to store food is the same. We take it for granted because, you know, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of people here will have both a fridge and a freezer and other ways of storing and preparing and whatever um, whatever to food. But, you know, it, again, in, in poorer parts of the world, that is a luxury and that that isn't the case for everybody. Um, but 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 like I said, so so difficult with with India to to lay down any sort of a sweeping statement of you know this is what happened in India or this is what it's like in India just by virtue of its sheer size and the scale compared to what we might be used to to in this part of the world, you know. Well, well indeed, and and also there's great variability. Um, uh, there there are. Um, uh, multiple different states and union territory administrations, uh, over 30 at last count, and um, uh, there will be a number of um, state-level policies which, again, um, have an impact on on marketing and, and regulation, mm. on things like um, uh, maximum retail pricing for certain types of food products. Um, uh, there's also the provision of um, rations in uh, certain parts of the country, and people have been dependent on having a ration card and collecting those 
rations. In fact, rations were once universally uh, available, um, and, and over time, um, uh, this system has not uh, necessarily been sustained across the board, but where it exists, um, people are very dependent on that uh, physical movement to go and collect their rations, which include a number of food staples for the week. Um, the government has been putting in special provisions with emergency rations, but uh, again, setting up the uh, systems to do that for a good percentage of a population of 1.3 billion is uh, no small feat. Uh, on top of that, um, uh, there's also uh, been the um, issue that um, there's been quite a lot of uh, immediate uh, migration uh, as a result of the lockdown um, in countries like India. Some of the floating urban population uh, have now um, migrated back to um, suburban or even more rural areas. Um, in general, India, um, for a country of its type and size, has a, a lower than expected um, rural to urban migration rate. But nonetheless, um, given the sheer numbers, um, it, this too has altered the dynamics of the rural environment. So there's been an immediate increase in population density uh, with an immediate decrease in in food supply. Yeah, so really being hit on on both sides there of increased demand or increased requirement for for the the, the various foodstuffs and whatever else, and then the, the fewer people maybe producing them than before because of the that that movement as well. So that's really that's all really interesting. And and again, if if you ever thought that food and supplying food to a population was simple, you need to just listen back to that and think of all the myriad of factors that are actually involved in keeping a, a population any population well fed not to mind one of, of like you said over over a billion people Shimon. so kind of going on from there then and, and thinking back to COVID specifically what what sort of impact either is COVID-19 having in in these settings or are we likely to see because again I mean like I suppose we're quite privileged here for a number of reasons um, based in you know Western Europe for example to say that yes there are a lot of difficulties at the moment and, and there's a lot of people suffering hardship but by and large I think people um, are, are, are able to have access to to reasonably good food and I, you know there's been so many things like um, supermarkets opening at specific times for specific populations and there's been so much talk about community involvement and helping out other people in your community but in 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 another setting again what what sort of things are likely to happen with such a big insult i suppose you could call it or assault on the on the food system what 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 are the likely outcomes that you would expect to see um in india for example when if and when covid kind of takes hold there as well sure i, I think india is a a very um prominent uh, case example, but really, as this is a pandemic and we're talking about uh, impact all over the world, um, uh, I, I'm just going to uh, draw from the United Nations Standing Committee on Nutrition and uh, sure. a rapid analysis um, 
based on uh, intelligence that multilaterals have brought together is really um, an impact on all of the different domains of the food environment. So, I mean, shortages of staples um, due to stockpiling is just the beginning of what is a bit of a, a domino effect um, because um, uh, more kind of distally um, there's reduced production and obviously there are trade restrictions as well. So, so it's not only the supply into the pipeline that is halting, it's whatever is in the pipeline that is um, in a way uh, stuck there. Um, and then things like fruit and vegetable shortages um, and um, because of the dilution in, um, I suppose, donations, um, food banks and, and other systems which um, uh, in countries like India used to cater to marginalized communities are, are experiencing uh, an acute reduction in, in resources. There's also the risk of inflation in uh, a number of different economies, uh, particularly those which don't have very strict regulation around maximum retail pricing. Um, and, and of course, um, shortage in fresh produce uh, means that um, supply chains are, are disrupted. And um, uh, I, I think um, for produce to reach markets, um, even if they did reach those markets, um, there, there could be um, movement restrictions which prevent access. Um, and I, I think alongside this, um, there's been the acute reduction in income and earning opportunities. And the informal economy, as one might term it, is a huge part of the um, living economy of countries like India. And um, uh, for many of those um, individuals, um, daily earnings are their only lifeline. Um, so this is really, um, uh, I, I suppose, uh, again, an overview of, of some of the um, potential disruptions, but also observed disruptions where they've already happened in, in low to middle income countries. Exactly, Shimon. And I think, you know, we, we mentioned earlier the, the complexities of such a large operation like like a food system you know there's so many different moving parts you mentioned reduced production of food you mentioned how that can lead on to shortages of staple crops and staple foods and while we're speaking about india in this case it it does just act really as a as an example because obviously this is going to be different across every country and every cultural background but the same issues or the same types of issues are likely to be faced and I suppose as well we also have to factor in when we talk about things like shortages the fact that with the ongoing pandemic there's probably going to be a lot of people also um, ill critically ill in some cases but also just maybe people out of work self-isolating and quarantining and everything else so again this is probably all going to play into people's ability to to access food and therefore get good nutrition as well on top of that. Um, I think it's also important to say in this breath that um, nutritional advice doesn't change because of the pandemic. 
but uh, of course it needs to become more pragmatic and it does need to take on urgency particularly in terms of um, encouraging adequacy in for example uh, key nutrient intake or, or micronutrient intake uh, which is very challenging when many of the main sources of the most important uh, micronutrients and uh, even macronutrients such as protein sources are in in short supply. Um, so, so I think um, based on that, it's important to marry up the um, high level observations and and learning from previous crises or pandemics with um, some of the uh, observations on on the ground. And um, in, in fact. Um, uh, particularly in a lot of these uh, households that we're most concerned about, rural or urban, uh, the income of women has been one of the um, key arteries for sustenance. And th this is very well described by um, uh, Dr. Padmaja, a colleague of mine from uh, Ikrisat, Hyderabad, um, where in fact, um, she uh, talks about how the lockdown um, has impacted all members in, in households um, in terms of their livelihoods. Um, and the onus of supporting these households um, has fallen on women um, who, in fact, um, have been working as daily labourers or um, as home help or uh, really um, in agricultural practice. Um, so, so they were previously an important contributor to income as well as upholding all of the functions of the household. Um, now um, they are the only contributors um, because they are the only ones who are still... Um, able to do something with savings that they may have or even um, through the cooperatives that they work through. Um, there's also um, been a, a sort of fast track search for alternative livelihoods that these women um, could potentially uh, access. But again, the onus is on these women. Um, and uh, there's probably a, a very limited or little support structure within the families or family networks um, and, and very limited support structure from outside. Um, again, some of these women are having to choose livelihood over health. Um, so that is not a choice that we would want anyone to, to make. Um, I think some of the lessons that come from this um, is um, the need to build more social capital and, and resilience in these communities, but also recognizing that, um, uh, in fact, uh, women uh, in these communities um, need to be empowered much further um, because they they. Uh, obviously need more of a reserve 
capacity to draw from, particularly when their immediate livelihood is taken away. So, so I think the the role of supporting um, women and and the supporting role that women are playing in marginalised communities needs to be looked at very very closely, both from a, a livelihood point of view, but also from the point of view of protecting their own health, because uh, they are the main artery, as I said, for sustenance of, of their families. Um, aside from this, um, I, I think um, we have some experience um, uh, ourselves in um, trying to empower such women through our mobile teaching kitchen project, which focuses on creating uh, culinary health educators and micro-entrepreneurs in, in urban slums. And typically um, in our flagship project, um, now two projects of a similar ilk, these women have been able to prepare fresh, tasty, healthy and inexpensive uh, nutritionally balanced meals and supply these not only to their own communities, but also to other echelons of society. Uh, of course, all of this movement is now uh, at a complete standstill. And uh, what we're doing, therefore, is taking this opportunity when the entrepreneurship part is paused to upskill these women further through whatever remote means and digital technologies we can so that we increase that um, reservoir of resilience and so that actually uh, they can diversify some of their income streams, um, albeit uh, around food and nutrition and food-related entrepreneurship. Um, so this is something which um, we are doing over coming weeks and months, particularly in our uh, Golgatha Urban Slums Teaching Kitchen. And um, we're also appealing to those who can to support uh, these champions through uh, our crowdfunding campaign. But this is really one tiny tip of a massive iceberg. And uh, my hope is that um, some of the lessons that um, those working in the field like ourselves, uh, some of these lessons can be synthesized together and be turned into more policy level interventions, but also um, interventions which can help with longer term resilience in these communities, which then again brings us back to the interaction between um, the built environment, the food environment, um, and of course the need to, uh, as our medical director would often put it, not only save lives but save livelihoods. So I think this is an opportunity as much as anything for us to think through all of these uh, acute problems, but in a way that we can secure the future. That's absolutely fantastic. And I, I think, you know, it's very encouraging, I suppose, to see that in, in the face of a challenge and, and a great challenge like COVID-19, that there are so many people already starting to think about, okay, well, what can we learn from this and what can we do 
better to to either you know help with this crisis itself but also prepare better for for future crises which are unfortunately always likely to um to kind of come about and you did mention a couple of documents and a couple of things there shimon for example from the un and from colleagues in hyderabad and we can we can link all those in the um the description uh to the to the show as well okay so shimon you've gone through quite a lot there in in quite a brief period of time and obviously like i said earlier you've you've given really fantastic detail on what exactly or at least some of the components um are that make up a food system and all the complexities of it while also giving a little bit of the the field experience you have from from working in in india and with colleagues out there so um thank you again for for joining me and um we'll be keeping up to date with everything that happens with with nedpro and its work in india and um and and, and like you said hopefully um people will find a way to to contribute to the the project as well thank you very much james thank you So big thank you once again to Shimon for for giving up some of his time. I think it was really nice to see the development from the previous conversation I had with Dr. Renita Barton, who I, I would encourage you to go and listen to that if you haven't done so before, seeing the progression from how the physical environment affects the food environment and how Shimon then built on that with, with further details on food systems and everything that has to do with that. So again, thank you, Shimon, for, for that. Um, I do want to acknowledge a couple of the people who Shimon is working with, particularly in this in this project. So, Dr. Uh, Shalaja Fennell from the University of Cambridge, uh, Professor Nitya Rao from the University of East Anglia, and Dr. Lydia Smith from the National Institute of Agricultural Botany, um, as well as a number of co-investigators from right across India, where they're looking at regions such as Punjab, West Bengal and Maharashtra, um, among others. So a big thank you to all of those people as well. As mentioned throughout the course of the podcast, I have linked a number of documents, blog posts and um, further reading if, if you are interested. And I highly encourage you to do so. There's some really excellent stuff in the show notes. Um, there will also be a link to the Ned Pro Mobile Teaching Kitchen, which is something that I, I really encourage you to have a look at. Very interesting project. And of course, if you're in a position to be able to support it, that would be absolutely fantastic. The next episode of the podcast is one that uh, I think will be really enjoyable to people as well. So I spoke with Alan Flanagan. So Alan is a PhD student at the University of Surrey, currently investigating um, chrononutrition. And we had a really in-depth conversation about scientific studies, research, and some of the, I suppose, some of the problems with research and, and some of the things that are maybe misunderstood at times and it was a really interesting in-depth conversation so I would really advise you to to listen to that one when that comes out very soon as well um, and very last if you do want to learn more about NEDPRO you can find us on social media you can find us on our website nedpro.org.uk and there you'll find lots of opportunities for further learning so we've recently launched a webinar series we'll have our regular summer school and international summit in september of this year now they'll be online events due to the coronavirus pandemic as well but if you are interested in learning more about nedpro and more educational opportunities then please do follow those links very lastly if you are someone who's listening to this podcast somebody who's listening uh, enjoying this podcast rather please do either recommend it to somebody you know share it on social media and write us a review 
if for nothing else it gives us an idea of how well we're doing if we're talking about things that people are interested in or if we're um, if there are other things that we can improve so please do let us know if you're enjoying the podcast and until the next episode thanks very much for joining and i'll speak to you soon